Well, we are seeking to cover 14 verses today. I don't know when the last time was I covered 14 verses in one sermon. Uh, and some of you are saying, yeah, we know. But uh, uh, I'm going to attempt to cover that big of a chunk. This passage is going to sound relatively redundant to you as you hear Paul saying the same things in many different ways through this passage. It's not unlike the passage we looked at last week, verses 1 through 5. Uh, but I want you to remember that as you start to think, wow, this is really repetitive, I want you to uh, remember that your thinking is not inspired, but the Bible is. So let's just follow the Word of God wherever it goes and uh, see what God has for us today. Do you remember that phrase from your parents, perhaps, that started off, if you don't have anything nice to say? <laughs> okay, all right, yeah, yeah, you still remember it. If you don't have anything nice to say, then don't say anything at all. Well, Paul has been presenting to us, starting with this, the beginning of this chapter and through today's passage, that if while you're in the assembly, if you don't have anything edifying to say, then maybe you just shouldn't say anything at all. That's what we're going to hear about over and over and over again, is that all the conversation, all the instruction, all the teaching in the gathering needs to be for the purpose of building up the people of God. So let's look at this together. Again, we'll read verses 6 to 13 to get started. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, starting at verse 6. It says, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of a revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, even flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will, we, how will it be known what is played on the flute or the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air." There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and, to the, one who, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret." Well, what we've learned last week and we're going to continue to learn this week is that personal edification, just you yourself being built up individually, at times happens apart from your understanding. There are things that you've gone through in life, whether small or great, that just totally surpasses your understanding. And it has left you with a greater appreciation for God's kindness and His sovereignty uh, I mean, just the, the smallest things. You, you were looking for your keys, you were in a hurry, and then there they were. How did they get there? I have no idea. How did my line of sight go there? I have no idea. It surpasses understanding, and you're just built up by that. Well, in a similar sense, with this gift of tongues, this miraculous sign gift that God gave to the early church, there were times when people would be used of Him to speak in a language that's unknown to them, a miraculous event. 
And even though there was no translation afterwards and they didn't understand every word that was being said, they were still left edified that God would gift them in that way, cause them to give thanks to His name in that way. It was a miraculous event, and so it was personally edifying. However, when there is an event that occurs outside of our understanding as a group, we are unable to be edified as a group. For the group to be edified, the group has to understand. And that's Paul's point. If someone is going to employ the gift of tongues and speak in tongues in the gathering, there must be translation. We have to know what's being said before we can say amen. We have to know what's being said before we can kick someone out of the church. We don't know which direction it's going, right? So we, the, each language, each tongue has to be translated. We don't kick people out of the church. Sorry for that glib illustration. But the, the simple statement is that the body as a whole can't grow if the body as a whole can't know. It's a rhyming verse I made just for this occasion. The, the body as a whole can't grow if the body as a whole can't know. If we can't know what's being said, we can't grow together. And so Paul here in our passage today is speaking of the futility of undeciphered languages, languages that are real languages, but without a translation leaves the whole process futile. And he starts by talking about lifeless instruments. You see that in verses 7 and 8? He's talking about uh, the flute. He's talking about the harp or the bugle in verse 8. Yours might say trumpet. These soulless noisemakers, these just inanimate objects that we've designed to make certain noises, well, they need to have a distinction in tones, it says. If there's just one tone being played, it's unfruitful. A single noise is unhelpful. Bugles, for instance, as Paul's pointing out in verse 8, they were used to call an army, to get them ready to go into battle, to call a group of men to go off and to engage in some sort of a battle. But if that bugle, you pick it up and it just only plays one thing or no noise comes out of it at all, what use is it, right? The, the message isn't communicated to those who need to hear. And so Paul is saying, if we have expectations for these lifeless things, how much more should there be an expectation for human beings to communicate in a clear way, particularly Christians, to communicate in a clear way? It's a futile effort with instruments. How much more is it futile with humans? So Robert Gramacki, he said this, and I didn't need to include this quote, but I know that some of you would really appreciate this note about music and instruments. He says that genuine music is not unintelligible noise. Amen? <laughs> some of you are thinking, rap? No. Uh, genuine music is not unintelligible noise. To be played properly and to be appreciated and understood, it must envelop a series of notes in harmony. They must make musical sense. And we know this. We should know this. Good music makes musical sense. And so Paul is saying if that's the case for the flute that's just lying over there or the harp, how much more in your church meetings should there be a clear message that everyone could understand? He says, too, that speaking in a way that's foreign to the hearer, that is equally unfruitful. Look at verse 9 again. Unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? That's a very straightforward, simple question. And the answer is there's no way to know. 
He talks about the number of languages in the world. And today it's estimated that there are somewhere around 6,500 languages in the world. That's a lot. We're impressed when someone knows more than one most of the time, right? And you, but you've met certain people who know three, four, five, six languages. Incredibly impressive. Yet, not everybody has the gift of translation, Paul's saying to these Corinthians. And so you have these people in the church who don't know the language that you are speaking, and therefore your speaking is futile. The prophet of the hearer must be in view. When someone speaks in the church, they must prioritize the prophet of the student or the hearer, the one who's listening. Look back at verse 6. This is Paul's mindset. Paul says, brothers, if, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or knowledge, prophecy, teaching? He's putting the focus on them. So many speakers, especially in churches, miss this big point, that the point is that everyone understands and can grow in their understanding. When we have our men's lunch <clears throat> the last Sunday of each month, and we, we do our student teaching in that time, some of you might not know that in our men's lunch, we have people sign up to teach devotionals, and we give them direct feedback about how they did. It's kind of a safe environment to sharpen the tools that you have in growing and teaching. Mostly safe, mostly safe environment. Uh, but one of the uh, points that, that comes up in the, uh, the, not grading, but the review or whatever, is did that person avoid jargon? That's one of the points on there. Because it's very easy, especially as you study a passage, prepare to teach, it's very easy to take a whole bunch of jargon, whether that's from Hebrew and Greek or whether that's from theological books or whatever it is, and to put it into the message because you've, you've learned it this week and you want everyone else to know that you learned it or whatever the case may be, and so you talk about it. But it's unprofitable for the hearer. I could come up here and talk about lapsarianism. And the difference between sub-lapsarianism, supra-lapsarianism, and infra-lapsarianism, and which one you hold to, or the trichotomy and dichotomy of the human constitution. Are we two parts, three parts, or do you believe in psychosomatic unity? And we could talk through all of that, but I don't think it would profit you very much, would it? wouldn't be very profitable. And so the speaker in the assembly of God's people must prioritize the profit of the hearer, speaking in a way that's clear and intelligible. But when you're primarily concerned with, as the Corinthians were, when you're primarily concerned with how you're perceived by others, that becomes your priority, and you no longer speak in a way that's helpful. The Corinthians had this amazing gift of tongues, some of them, and they were concerned with other people knowing they had that gift. And so they wanted to get up there and to show off how they could speak in other languages so that everyone knew, oh, that person is spiritual. That person's really mature. That person must be really Christ-like because look what that person's doing. And no one was actually profiting. Egos were inflated. Heads were puffed up. That's what Paul talks about with the Corinthians. You're puffed up. But no one actually was built up. And that has to be the priority. Look again at verse 6 and see the four things that Paul lists that lead to profitability. He says, a revelation, knowledge, prophecy, and teaching. These are the things that lead to edification in the gathered assembly. 
Speaking in a tongue, if it's interpreted, would fit into this category, but uninterpreted languages just don't fit there. Now, some of these four things, when you look at the four things he lists in verse 6, some of these things have faded. We know that God is no longer giving a revelation or a prophecy. This was a specific period of time when he was doing such a thing. Yet we know that teaching and knowledge, these things are profitable for the church, aren't they? As we come together and someone rightly divides the word of truth, as someone rightly instructs a fellow believer in the truth, that's profitable for all of us. And Paul says that's what he's going to prioritize in the assembly. This direct speech of teaching-like ministries, promoting not just orthodoxy, believing the right things, but orthopraxy, living the right way in light of those things. That comes from direct speech. And that results in true profit. The Corinthian approach to all of these things didn't result in profit or unity, but the Corinthian approach resulted in division. Look down at verse 11 when he says, look, if you've got two people talking and they don't know the same language, what's going to happen? Well, to the one who speaks, I'll be like a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be like a barbarian to me. And so the intended result that the Corinthians were looking for wasn't actually holding true. They wanted people to see how spiritual they were that they could speak with other languages, and sure, that's impressive. But at least after a while, certain people would say, I have no idea what you're saying. You're just some kind of barbarian. And the speaker would say, you don't know what I'm understanding? Well, you're a barbarian. It creates factions. It creates division. And we know from 1 Corinthians 13, we just looked at this recently, chapter 13, verse 5, that love does not seek its own. So, when you're speaking, when you're engaging in discourse with people in the church, you should not be seeking to be perceived by that person as something that you're not. You shouldn't try to inflate your persona in the mind of that other person. You shouldn't aim for that person to think, oh, you're really spiritual and mature. You should seek the profit of that person, regardless of how that makes you look. And that just goes so counter to our natural instincts. (laughs) I recognize oftentimes as a pastor, I don't get the real you. Now, for some of you, I do. At least I'm fairly confident that I do. But others, I'm sure that I get a version of you, which kind of stinks, to be honest with you, because you don't want me to think certain things about you. That's not what the New Testament says our interactions should be like. Our interactions should be based on the profit of another, serving one another, seeing what we can do to build one another up, even if that other person is a pastor. That should be our mindset. And so the whole point of this, Paul says, verse 12, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. And Let the one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. So tongues must be accompanied by interpretation in their assembly, Paul says, even if it's by the speaker himself. The speaker of tongues can pray that he may interpret. That's a good thing. And this is a rebuke. I think this whole passage is a rebuke of those charismatic churches that promote some sort of babble as spiritual maturity that promote some sort of ecstatic speech as a mark of growth in the Christian life. 
that you've individually gotten to some higher plane because you now speak in an unintelligible way. Paul's point here is that your speaking must be intelligible, and it should not be to show other people you're spiritual. It should be to build them up. This is a very succinct quote, very simple quote, but it's powerful for that reason. Thomas Schreiner, he says, the purpose of speaking is to instruct others not to display one spiritual gift. It's so basic. It's so basic. Your speaking to another is to build that person up, not to show off whatever you got. That's powerful. And so often we can drift from that goal. As a gift in the church, tongues or languages was always to be a vehicle for encouraging others. It was never meant to be a badge of spirituality. And so many churches today still treat it that way. And that's wrong. This is also a rebuke, I think, this passage is a rebuke of those churches that promote mysteries, those churches that exalt doubt and questions over and against truth. You see, Paul in this passage isn't just arguing that they speak clearly and intelligibly, but Paul's arguing that they speak certainly, that they speak from the basis of truth, based on God's revelation, based on a true, certain teaching from God. That's what edifies. Because you could speak clearly, perhaps, but then just still speak mysteries. Maybe you're speaking in the language that everyone speaks, but you're not promoting truth or certainty. Instead, you're just casting more doubts in the mind of people. Does that ever build anyone up? It certainly doesn't. But speaking God's Word, promoting God's Word, packaging God's Word in in ways that He leads and guides with the giftings that He gives, that builds up the church. So any church that promotes some sort of babble, unintelligible babble, any church that promotes the exaltation of mystery, they're missing the point, Paul says. The point is that we speak clearly and certainly on the basis of God's Word. So we might uh, feel like we're really stuck on one issue here, which we are, because God's put us here to think about this. We're just following Paul's emphasis. He's pressed the point on this, and now he's going to talk even more about certain scenarios where tongues may occur. You might be wondering, well, what did it even look like in the church? And especially in the second half of the chapter, we're going to see what it looked like when they spoke in tongues in the church, or what it should have looked like, rather, and the same with prophecy. But for now, let's look at verses 13 through 19. Again, verse 13 says, "'Let the one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret.'" Verse 14, "'For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then?' I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of of the ungifted say the amen at the end of your giving thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, In the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul here gives us a little more application as we think through the Corinthian situation and then try to bridge that for us today. 
He talks about in the first part of this section, starting in verse 14, the idea of praying and singing in the assembly. God's people gathered together to pray and to sing. We've done that here today, haven't we? It's a sweet thing to do. It's a mark of uh, Christian fellowship. In fact, I would go as far to say that praying and singing in the assembly is essential. These are essential participatory elements of the gathering. In fact, James 5.13, I'll just put this up here for your own uh, note-taking if you want to jot it down. James 5.13, is anyone among you suffering, then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful, he is to sing praises. This happens in the context of God's people being together, praying and singing. You kind of get the idea that in the New Testament church, sliding in and out without talking to anybody wasn't really in view, was it? We're together to talk, to pray, to sing. And giving thanks through tongues, through the miraculous gift of speaking in a language that you didn't know, this was personally edifying for the Corinthian who was doing it, but it didn't edify anyone else. It edified the speaker. He was built up in his spirit. Look again at verse 14. Paul says, if I pray in a tongue, if I bless in a tongue, if I sing in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. His mind was bypassed in a sense, not that he was brain dead, but that his spirit alone was edified and not his mind. The lack of understanding rendered his mind fruitless, even though his spirit was edified. Last week on this very issue, I mentioned just in passing Romans 8, where it talks about uh, the Holy Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And I want to dwell on that idea for a little bit today to maybe make some things clear that I didn't do a good job of making clear last week. But in Romans 8, verse 15, it says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That was the verse I mentioned last week and linking it to this passage saying, how does that work? How does the Holy Spirit testify with our spirit that we are children of God? Well, there are certainly times, perhaps the vast majority of the time, when He does that through our understanding, reading the Word of God, understanding the truth of God, knowing what the gospel is. But there are also times when we feel an inexplicable comfort from the Holy Spirit, aren't there? There are times when our brains don't understand the comfort or the peace that we have from God. Isn't that true? <laughs> I mean, I have, I have witnessed, I, I've gone through some things in my life, and I've witnessed in other people's lives who have the Holy Spirit, that you just can't explain how that person is a rock in the midst of that storm other than that person has God. And that God is doing a certain work in that person's life. And in that sense, a person who is used of God to speak in a language miraculously, to give thanks, to praise His name, even though that tongue may have gone untranslated, which was wrong in the church, that person personally was still built up in some sort of mysterious way like that. God in His Spirit working in that person's life. You can't write an essay about these types of events. You can't sit down and say, here's what happened, because we just don't understand. 
But again, I want to make clear that the person who was experiencing such a thing, that person's brain was still involved. But the person's brain was saying, this is inexplicable. (laughs) It's not that the brain wasn't involved at all. It's that the brain was identifying this as an inexplicable, miraculous event, because that's the nature of miracles, isn't it? They're inexplicable. So we recognize, of course, Jesus' instruction to love the Lord your God with all your mind. That should be our pursuit. But we also recognize that there are times when the peace of God will come upon you surpassing understanding, and your mind can't explain it. That's a promise that we have, that the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will work in your lives. And these miraculous sign gifts, they also surpassed understanding. And so even though the tongue was untranslated, the individual was still edified. But we must remember that personal edification is not the purpose of the meeting. Even, that, even though it's an amazing thing, praise God, brother, praise God, sister, that He did that in your life. But when we're all together, we're going to prioritize the understandable things. When we're all together, we're going to promote certainty. When we're all together, we're going to focus on word-based teaching from the Word of God. There are certain churches out there that you could attend where they have mottos and slogans, things like, we're here for you to encounter God in a powerful way. Well, depending on what they mean by that, that could be an amazing statement or a really terrible statement. There are certain ministries that are set up for you to have a personal experience and then leave. That is not the purpose of the meeting. The purpose of the meeting is for all people to be edified together. Church isn't about you. It's not about me. It's about us. And the meetings are to reflect that truth. How do we bear fruit as a local assembly? By growing as a group. Can you imagine how sad and how ironic it would be if Orchard Hills Bible Church had no fruit? (laughs) If we were just a dried-up orchard... Our goal should be to bear fruit together. For the Corinthians, on this certain issue, it meant interpreting tongues or speaking in the common language for all to be edified through understanding. And that was Paul's resolve. Look at verse 15. What's the outcome then? Here's his resolution. I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the mind also. Paul is saying that when I'm with you, Corinthians, I'm going to pray and praise in Greek so you can all understand. He spoke in tongues, but in the church, he was going to speak in an understandable way so that they would be able to participate. Look at verse 16. Otherwise, if Paul didn't do this, or if they themselves didn't do this, Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. Speaking in a non-understandable way, an unclear way, prohibits other people from agreeing with you. And Paul says that needs to be the goal of your communication, that they can agree with you. There's a, a man <clears throat> from our hometown, a very important man in my life, who very often when there's a group prayer, we're, we're going around praying one by one, whatever the case may be, he'll say something to the effect of, Lord, I agree with, with these prayers. Uh, 
Now, often that's our posture in our heart. We agree with one another. But we can only do that if we know what each other is saying. What, what power is there in our prayer if we're unable to come alongside the one speaking in an unintelligible sense? All the assembly agreeing with prayer, agreeing with praise, that's group edification. The amen of their neighbor. You see that again in verse 16. The amen from their neighbor was more important than they realized. Perhaps it's more important than you realize that other people would hear you and hear you clearly and agree with you. Paul says about the person saying amen, I just referred to him as a neighbor. It says here in verse 16, the one who fills the place of the ungifted. That's pretty interesting. Verse 17 says the other person. We don't get a ton of detail as to who he has in view. It's possible that he has in view just other Christians, but it's also possible that he has in view even those who are visiting, those who are outsiders regarding the assembly, maybe not even Christians at this point. Drop down to verse 22 with me. He talks about such people in that context here. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22, he says, "'Tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers, but prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe.'" Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and here's our word, and ungifted men or unbelievers, kind of pairing those two together, they enter, what will, or will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy, an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, and he is called to account by all. So perhaps Paul was thinking of uh, outsiders coming into the assembly, those who hadn't believed the gospel yet, you're going to drive them away with your crazy spiritual expressions that aren't helping anybody. Paul says, speak in a clear and intelligible way. Well, the answer to this is that anyone who doesn't speak the language needs to be accommodated. They need to be accommodated. That's Paul's big point. Prior but it requires that they prioritize other people in the gathering. Other people had to be the priority, not their own personal spiritual expressions. Do you get it yet? Are you getting it? It's just like the same thing over and over again. But I trust that God knew what He was doing when He put His Word together, didn't He? And He has this here for us today for a reason, doesn't He? That we would be thinking on these things, that we would really consider, not just that fleeting consideration that you forget about by the time you get to your car in the parking lot, but that real consideration of prioritizing other people in the fellowship, that real consideration that leads to life change, that changes the way you prepare to come on Sunday morning, Wednesday night, whatever it may be, that real consideration where you find application of certain ways that you can bless certain people in their context, in your local assembly. I hope that's what God's doing in your heart. I'm feeling it in my heart as we're studying this. I hope God's doing that in your mind, that this isn't just words on a page, but that this is our life. This is our community. This is our family. How are we to consider our family reunions, you could call, when we get together? He's giving us very clear instruction to serve one another and to make that the priority. We're learning very important principles about unity in the church here, particularly about clearness of speech. 
Gordon Fee writes this about verse 17. You know, of course, Paul says, to be sure you are giving thanks. Then Gordon Fee says, that is not quite adequate in the assembly. He is telling them, what is needed is to give thanks intelligibly so that others may benefit as well. Our goal needs to be clearly seeking to build one another up with clear speech. If I came up and just dropped theology bombs on you each week, I suppose that wouldn't be very helpful. I'd have fun, (laughs) but you probably wouldn't. But if I got up here and said nothing, that would be equally unhelpful. It's kind of the same thing because there would be no growth in our understanding. There's an expectation Paul is laying forth here, an expectation of praying, praising, giving blessings, instructing, agreeing with one another, and that it's done in a way that everyone comes along together. That's our primary concern in the assembly. So let's look at verses 18 and 19 again as we close this section. Paul says this startling statement, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. You would almost expect a na-na-na-na-na to follow that, but that's not what he's saying. And he goes on to say, However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul is saying that corporate edification in the spirit and in the mind is the goal. He was thankful for the miraculous gift of tongue speaking, language speaking, that he had, When he says here that I speak in tongues more than you all, that could mean that more often does he have the ability by the Holy Spirit to speak another language. It could also mean I speak in more languages than you all. I have a gifting that is is broader than yours, that I could speak in even more languages than you're able to speak. It's God's, not not Paul's pride, but it's God's special anointing in his life. He not only had the ability, but he did it more than they, he says. And it was personally beneficial to him. He's thanking God for it. He's thanking God that he had the ability to do it by the Holy Spirit. But notice the geographical shift that's here. I speak in tongues more than you all. Personal pronouns, something that he does personally. And then he says, however, in the church. Now, he's transferring the geography from a personal thing that he was doing, whether that was in his evangelism or personal prayers, whatever it was, to now in the church. And in the church, he prioritized prophesying, teaching, preaching, knowledge, over and against, however many words he could speak in a tongue. The smallest amount of understanding was better than much mystery, Paul says. Do you believe that? The smallest amount of understanding is better than much mystery. Proverbs has a lot to say about that. We are to hold on to knowledge, to get knowledge, get understanding, get wisdom. So this means for the Corinthians, tongues was optional in the meeting. You could could have a whole gathering, a whole assembly, a whole meeting with no tongue speaking, no languages being spoken miraculously. And that's fine in Paul's eyes as long as there was certainty, truth, knowledge, based on God's revelation, advanced in the assembly. Look back at verse 6 with me, when Paul lists 
these four items, revelation, knowledge, prophecy, teaching, these were essential in the gathering, but tongues were not. Drop down to verse 26, same chapter, chapter 14, verse 26. I read to you this, this verse earlier, but we're going to look at the verses that follow. Paul says, when you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, verse 27, it should be by two or at the most three and each in turn, and one must interpret. But look at what he says. If there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. He can keep silent in the church. He can have his gift, exercise his gift in a personal way. He can speak to himself and to God and be personally edified, but not in the church. In the church, there is to be an interpretation. And if there is no interpreter, you cut it. You cut it. Because we prioritize the profitability of the other. Paul has an expectation that we'd get together, that we'd chat, that we'd build one another up that we'd participate in the assembly, and that we would do so with the motivation of building up our neighbor, not ourselves, not puffing up our own ego, but lifting up the soul of our brother or sister in Christ. So we're going to be talking more about these things. We're going to be seeking to really apply these things, especially in, uh, on Wednesday nights. Wednesday nights are going to become a little bit of a, uh, I don't know, a laboratory for us. And I'm not talking about speaking in tongues, okay? Uh, <clears throat> I'm not talking about new revelation. Go back and listen to the miraculous sign gifts message on that, the, the no MSG message if you're confused about that. But the participatory elements that are here, that in the fellowship we are all to participate and we're to build one another up and we're to employ the gifts that God gives and we're to prepare ourselves to come to share we're going to experiment with some stuff, and we're going to see if we can get ourselves a little bit out of our comfort zone and stay really far away from spectator sport Christianity or performance-based Christianity that we might honor God based on the instructions we have in His Word. Okay? Let's pray. God, again, we thank You. You are King. You are sovereign. You have built Your church, and You are continuing to build Your church through the finished work of Christ. Lord, we ask that you would give us just great application in our personal lives and in our gathered assembly here, that we would honor you, that we wouldn't pursue mystery or doubt or questioning or anything that's unintelligible or unclear, but that we would pursue truth and knowledge and be thankful for the mysterious things you do along the way. God, give us hearts for one another that we would rejoice with those who rejoice, that we'd weep with those who weep, that we would just have as our absolute primary concern, the other person, our brother, our sister, our neighbor. Give us that kind of love for each other and help us to understand what it is you have for us in our context, that we would grow together as, a, as just a strong, committed witness to the gospel, the gospel of grace that has freed us from the condemnation we deserved in our sin. Thank you. 
for your amazing work in our hearts through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.